Hello everyone, welcome to Radically Loved Radio. I wanted to create a place where people can go to to get inspired, get motivated, or find some clarity and get tools to create a radically loved life. I will do my best to provide information on a variety of subjects, including yoga, holistic health, life coaching, spirituality, meditation, and overall mindful living. Each episode will bring you some of the world's best spiritual leaders, entrepreneurs, yoga teachers, coaches, along with some of my closest friends, and we will talk about their life experiences and journeys to create something more out of their lives and how they continue to grow to make that happen. Hey guys, Rosie here. I just want to say I am so grateful that you're listening. We are just getting a massive amount of response on this podcast, and I am so grateful that you're a part of this radically loved community, that you're enjoying the content and that you're enjoying all the guests and that you're still here and you're still working on yourself and your journey and your path. And I pray that you've received some tools listening to the guests or listening to any of my ideas or topics on meditation or yoga and how these tools can help you create a life of purpose to continue to help us give you the best content you can subscribe to this podcast and most of the time you can just do it from your phone from itunes click subscribe and write a review this really helps us continue this path and this journey and we love doing it so much and again i'm so grateful that you're here let us know what you thought thanks for listening Sean Korn is an internationally celebrated yoga teacher known for her impassioned activism, unique self-expression, and inspirational style of teaching that incorporates both the physical and mystical aspects of the practice of yoga. Since the beginning of her teaching career in 1994, many yoga, health, and wellness sources have sought her insight and expertise, having appeared on over 20 magazine covers, featured in over 30 magazine publications. Sean was featured as a yoga contributor for Oprah.com's spirit section and was seen on the Today Show with Matt Lauer. She is an incredible inspiration and a powerful voice in our yoga community. I had the opportunity to talk to her about many different subjects, one in particular that has been sort of taking over the uh, media outlets in our community that is very important, not only just for women, but for men. And I was so, so, so inspired by what she had to say and the important message that she has for us all. Here's my chat with Sean Korn. So I am... I am so excited to have uh, Sean on the show today because uh, not only are you one of my heroes, which I can say that, and um, I'm just, I, I've always looked up to you in, in the world of yoga and our community and just as somebody who is actually taking their practice off the mat and into the world. Um, so thank you for being on and for being part of, of the show today. Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be on and I look forward to this conversation. Yes, I'm excited. Okay, so um, just to really kind of just start the topic, um, in the light of recent events with what's happening in, uh, in the community, not only politically, uh, socially, and economically with 
you know, all the, the allegations coming out of all these men abusing women and, um, you know, abusing their, their, their stage of power, uh, for us, how, how do you see this playing out and what do you, why do you think this is happening now? Um, I mean, I, I'm so happy that it's happening. It's time that it's happened. This is not a surprise for me. Um, I think that under the circumstances that with everything that's been going on with the current administration prior to the election, uh, there was the fact that someone who was accused by 20 women of sexual harassment, abuse, and misconduct was able to get into the highest office in our nation and then subsequently call these women liars, I think set a tone, thankfully, that enough was enough. And that if we, as a society, men, women, people alike, we need to band together and to acknowledge this injustice and empower each other to speak this truth Otherwise, this change will never happen. And I saw it. I, I mean, I remember when all of this was going down, watching my own stepdaughter have a visceral reaction to the allegations and seeing the trauma unleashed within her. And what I observed was this her trauma wasn't just personal, it was historical, it was cultural, it was ancestral. What she was grieving was the thousands of years of oppression that women have experienced at the hands of the patriarchy and oppression that she herself obviously couldn't have experienced in this present lifetime, but lives within her body. Um, and it was as if that unearthed trauma was activated within so many. And I feel that that sense of powerlessness, rage, um, activated and has moved into this Me Too movement. So essential, it's necessary. I'm glad for it. Um, I also think that there's a lot of bigger, deeper systemic issues that need to be addressed when it comes to the men. These men, they're not just all harassers, all abusers, all manipulators. It's set up in our systems. And it's a bigger issue that has to be addressed that I genuinely believe that a lot of these men don't even realize what they're saying or doing could in any way be disempowering because it's so normalized in our society. And so there needs to be obviously a lot of education um, and uh, time and space for real dialogue to happen on both sides. Um, otherwise, there could be potentially a backlash against the women who are expressing themselves, even more so than there already is. Wow, yeah, I, I could totally see how, how that's possible, which again is so shitty <laughs> that that's something that could potentially happen and we can all see how it potentially can happen because it's been so, the the behavior of men or the patriarchy has been has been so normalized just in our conditioning of, of society. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Oh yeah. I mean, and not only that, it's like we as women are conditioned to make excuses, to minimize, to, uh, quantify, you know, well, well, it wasn't really that bad. He just grabbed my ass. You know, it, it, it wasn't really harassment. It wasn't really rape. You know, he was kidding. We're conditioned to soften the blow, to try to see that bigger picture, to understand, well, they don't know anything, you know, that's just how men are. And that has to change also. Yeah. Well, do you think that we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think in, um, in all different ways. I mean, right now we're seeing the most privileged and the most powerful come forward. You know, the, the white actresses who have money, power, backing, support, and influence, um, their voice is necessary, it's essential. Um, what is a concern is, it's the housekeepers, it's the, it's the people who are working at McDonald's or Burger King or in CVS, wherever who don't have the same kind of power or support or influence. And they're subjected each and every day to their managers and people there who are in power, who really aren't in power in the big scheme of things. They're also mm -hmm. oppressed people. Yeah. But yet in that environment, they exhibit more power than perhaps the people who they employ. And the people whom they employ perhaps can't quit, don't have the luxury to walk away from a job that might be helping to feed themselves and their family. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm hoping that this, that the people right now who have the opportunity to speak up and out are, can and do, and that systems change to protect those who can't because of the reasons that I just said. So I do think it's just the beginning. Um, and in all the different, in all the different communities, we're seeing it right now in the yoga community as well. And it's, necessary and it's it's time has come and I think that there's an appropriate way to go forward and do this but that it's a broader conversation it just can't we just can't continue to make all men bad wrong flawed imperfect evil and that women are victimized there's got to be a way to recognize that this is trauma it runs deeper and that there is an undoing that has to happen emotionally and psychologically that's been implemented from our education, from our religious systems, obviously right now through our government. And that's much more complex uh, than just suggesting that all men are bad. Um, I think though that I look forward to a deeper conversation, but it's gonna get messy. It's gonna require a lot of bravery on both sides and uh, a lot of humility and uh, oh, personal ownership. So it's, a, it's an exciting time. Anytime truth can come out, I think it's gotta be exciting, although it is scary. Yeah, it's totally scary. You know, it's just what you were talking about, how, you know, it's, it's all women's voices that, that matter. I remember my aunt uh, was working at a hospital uh, here in LA and she got uh, accosted in an elevator by a, a male uh, x-ray technician and was assaulted. And I remember her coming home and being so upset and everyone around saying, don't say anything because you'll lose your job and you can't afford to lose your job. And I just remember like at such a young age, Sean thinking like, that's not right. Like there's something wrong with that. 
you yes. know, um, but also like being conditioned in, in an environment, you know, obviously like I, I grew up in East LA during the LA riots. So it was very chaotic around that time. And I would go to school and have to, um, you know, take, take the bus to school and, you know, encountered a lot of harassment myself. I mean, I got chased one time I, I got off on a bus stop and I literally, I was a 12 year old child, you know, got chased from a man that was trying to assault me, you know, and I remember how traumatic that was, but it also wasn't like a big deal. Do you know what I mean? It was just kind of like, oh, you know, it's okay that you're a 12 year old girl that's getting cat called as you walk through a construction site. Like that's not normal and it's not okay, but it's so, it's so uh, disregarded as a norm, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I used to, excuse me, I used to joke when I was a kid because it started when I was around 15 years old was the first time a man exposed himself to me in a, at a store where I worked at, at late at night, it was a Krauser's Deli. And, um, this man came in and I was alone and he exposed himself and, you know, thankfully nothing happened more than that. But for 14 years straight, 14 years in four different countries, in six different states, men would expose themselves to me in the New York Public Library. It was in, uh, you know, in the subways um, here in LA. It was in India. It was in Greece. And I used to joke with my friends, like, all the time. I used to say, I swear to God, I'm a dick magnet. Like, <laughs> I, if I was anywhere where there was a man, I would actually think to myself, how long is it going to take before he pulls his penis out and shows it to me? Like it became so normal in my consciousness to anticipate when it was going to happen. And when it would happen, I, in my mind, I would think, and there it is. Um, and it wasn't until I got older where I realized 14 years that I lived with that until it finally stopped. And I don't know why it stopped. I don't know what changed in, in, what, in, in the atmosphere. But for whatever reason, that didn't become a, that wasn't a part of my consciousness. Maybe I got older. Maybe it's because I was no longer um, prey. I was no longer a little girl and weak. And, you know, that that the men who were, for whatever reason, that ended up in my sphere thought that they could exploit. Once I got to a certain age, maybe I seemed more threatening. Um, But it happened 14 years and it was so normal in my body. And but truly traumatic when I look back at it and I look at the signs of what would happen in my body when it would happen that I would always freeze. I would never know, I wouldn't say anything. I would always pretend it wasn't happening. Um, And those are classic signs of of trauma. And this was consistent and so normal in my experience. And it's not normal, it's just normalized. It's just something as a young person, you learn how to um, adapt to. And I look back at now and I think how horrible that from 15 until almost 30 years old, that my nervous system had to be on, um, was hypervigilant for all those years, anticipating. I think what my nervous system was anticipating is when was it going to just stop at being exposed? When was it going to become a touch or a rape? And my nervous system was always prepared for that inevitability. And uh, I think that that's something that a lot of women regardless of your color, your socioeconomic status, your religion, the size or shape of your body, um, or what you're wearing, it doesn't matter. 
Um, you know, it's just like I could be running around at that time. I look, you know, I was a kid and it didn't matter. The fact that I was vulnerable, I was young and I had a vagina had an influence on whether or not I could be taken advantage and exploited by the men in my, my world. Ugh. Yeah, that's just, I really feel like this is just like the beginning of uh, not only us being able to have an open conversation about it, but just our ability to be able to create some sort of uh, plan or, or strategy to begin to uh, prevent those things from happening. Mm -hmm. Well, only education. You know, the only way that we can prevent this from happening is awareness and education and also working together in mass, um, you know, being more engaged and helping to be a voice for those who cannot express themselves at this time because of fear of, you know, losing their job or persecution. I think the more someone like myself, for example, like I can speak out because I'm in a position to do so. I have certain privileges. My job is not at stake. My body is not at stake. Um, as a result of speaking up and out. Therefore, I have an accountability and a responsibility to do so um, for that very reason, recognizing that for a lot of other women, this is not a possibility. Um, but I also have to acknowledge that because of my privileges, I am protected. And that there are a lot of, of, of women and people, trans people, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are really, every single day of their life, they walk around anticipating violence, anticipating harassment. And I can't imagine what that must be like. Um, you know, I experienced it to a degree in my youth, but I can't imagine even if I was at this age, 51 years old and was constantly in hypervigilance that way and couldn't say anything because I'd lose my job, couldn't say anything, or perhaps I, I might get beaten. Like, that's something that has to be transformed. And the only way to transform it is through change of policy, holding people accountable and making sure that we're communicating often about these really serious issues. Um, marching, demonstrating, all of it is essential right now. So, um, you know, I'm all for it. I think Me Too is powerful. It's a movement whose time has come and it's something that we can no longer be passive about it has to change, but the education has to change. Men have to know what the consequences are to taking advantage of the power dynamics that are set up and exploiting those, those power dynamics because of their own unhealed wounds or ego. Yeah. So how do we, how do you think we begin to change those power, those power dynamics? Um, hopefully more and more women will run for office. I think that's critical. I think that, you know, we have to remember that our systems are compromised, they're broken, they're flawed, but the, con the systems are only made up by people. And if we change the people, we alter the systems from the inside out. Getting more people involved in politics who are committed to creating equal and fair policy that protects all people, that is the way that real systemic change is going to happen. And I think that that's the grassroots movement that is essential. And so for people listening, one of the most important things that we can do as we move towards this 2018 election, um, the midterms, is to get more women in office, um, go onto Emily's list and to look at how it works and how it happens and who's running. 
Um, more and more women are engaging in this capacity. Find women who are aligned with your values and get them into office on a local level and on a national level. And I think that that is the sea change that's essential in order to really begin to help to alter uh, the, the policies that are already in place that are not protecting women the way in which they should. And so that to me is one of the most important things that we can do. And call your congressman, call your senator, um, be heard. And if, you, and if it's not safe to be heard, maybe, maybe find one person, an ally, a friend, and just practice telling your truth to someone. Liberate yourself from the burden of the harassment of the abuse that you're carrying by, if it, again, only if it's safe without any other intention, except that to allow someone else to bear witness to your struggles, odds are they have their own. And that's really how allyship begins. And then who knows what happens from there. But for some people, just breaking the shame and the secretness of what's happening out in, in the industries is going to be the first step towards healing and empowerment. And then who knows what happens? And then, of course, people who do have influence and power need to be more vocal, need to be more radical in their own willingness to take chances when it comes to this particular dialogue. Um, and also invest and support uh, women who are interested in leadership and get them on the ballot in whatever capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, so Sean Corn's going to be running for office, everyone, just so you guys know. <laughs> well, see, I wouldn't suggest it's, it's not going to happen. Like my feeling right now around that, because people ask me all the time if I'll run for office. And right now I feel like I'm playing catch up politically. And I'm, I didn't have the, the, I didn't have the opportunity to go to college. And I, there was a lot that I didn't know about politics and understand about the ways in which social justice works, the ways in which systems or policies work. Um, I've always been a little bit behind the eight ball. I'm more uh, intuitive in the way in which I am, you know, I, I learn information. Um, and so over the past five years, I would say, I've, and especially in the last two years, I've really invested myself, my time in learning more about politics, about how these administrations are run, about what it means to serve at different levels. And there's rhetoric that I didn't used to understand that I, I do now. And I see that what I'm doing right now is getting an education, asking a lot of questions, getting more involved to really understand the ways in which the system works. So that if I do run for office, which would be later on in life, you know, I think like maybe when I'm 60, that at least I know what I'm doing and you know, to whom I'm speaking to and what it means to be a service in that capacity. So it's not off the table. It's just that if I did it, I'd want to do it um, correctly. Yeah. Um, oh, well, I mean, look, you've got my vote and you've got yeah. probably everyone listening to this podcast vote. So, I mean, I remember how thoroughly disappointed I was when Marianne Williamson um, didn't win. And I remember you were involved with, with that as well, right? Very much so. I was on, from the very beginning, I was a huge supporter of Marianne's efforts. And I would be a huge supporter if she ever chose to run uh, for Congress or any office again. 
her voice is an essential one at this time. And she's a perfect example of someone who really understands the system that way. She's been, and also she's been very encouraging to me to run for office as well. Um, so if she, if she listens to this, she'll be very, um, she'll get a real kick out of it because uh, this has been a conversation her and I have had very often about how she believes that in my future, what would be the best use of my voice and it would be in office. And I, and if she is listening, I feel the same way back at her. So I hope she does choose to run again, run again in the future. Uh, her voice and other women like her are absolutely essential to this evolving, not just this evolving dialogue, but when it comes to healthcare, environmental justice, gender justice, peace, a woman's voice has to be included and it has to be vibrant and strong and well-informed. And Marianne was very well positioned. Um, and so I'm hopeful that there'll be more women like her who would be willing to put themselves out there. Having been a part of her campaign, it was so much work, effort, um, stamina. Um, I was often a little overwhelmed by how much energy she had to put out daily. Um, and although she learned a lot, you know, it, it was still very, very intense. And part of me thought, why would anyone want to do this? This seems like, you know, seems awful. <laughs> and yet I would imagine though, if you do get the privilege of being able to be a part of the administration, you're representing the people and that's a huge honor and um, a, a massive gift. And um, that would what that's what I would hold in my heart if I ever did run, but not yet. I got, I'm busy. I got other stuff I got to deal uh, with right now. All right. <laughs> You'll keep us waiting then. We'll, we'll hope that the ground is set perfectly for when you're ready. You've got, you've got our support. That would be amazing. Um, just going back to, to this, this conversation in, in regard to our community, in regard to the, the yoga community, uh, which has also had its onslaught of allegations and different, different things that have come out. I, I really think it's almost like, I mean, we've heard it before with, you know, uh, Bikram uh, Chowdhury and you know all these gurus that have abused their power, but I'm I'm hearing all these stories of teachers in in actual studios uh, and how they've had you know women have had experiences with men being inappropriate and so on. How do you think we can we can educate that in in this world where women or people men and women are so open and exposed to having somebody guide them through? a spiritual practice or a physical practice and, and have that dynamic. Um, this is, this, this is a big conversation and I, it's an essential one. You know, I've been a part of this in industry for, since I was 18 years old, but I became a teacher in 1994. So, um, I don't even know what that is. I've been teaching for a really long time, 23 years. And the, I remember as a young student walking into the rooms and inevitably projecting so much onto the yoga teachers, um, male yoga teachers, you know, as someone who was young and healing and vulnerable and wanting so much to be a part of a community and to be part of a lineage and to open my heart to what I perceived as the divine and looking at teachers at that time as the, the gateway between my own development and this spiritual um, reclamation. And it's all, of course, projection and, and a necessary part of one's healing path 
as they learn how to um, empower themselves, heal the fractured parts within themselves. Just like in therapy, there's always transference, there's often projection, and the onus is on the therapist. In the same way, the onus is on the, the yoga teacher to recognize that that projection happens, it's a part of the experience, but the onus is on the teacher never to manipulate it or exploit it or take advantage of it. And unfortunately, I saw very often and I experienced as a young student that very exploitation and manipulation happen at the expense of my own healing. And the teachers themselves didn't often recognize the power position that they were in and also didn't understand the shadow of what it meant to be in that position and how seductive that exchange, that power dynamic can be. And I didn't really get clear on that part of it until I became a yoga teacher myself. And to be on the other side, to stand in the seat of the teacher, to be in the seat of the teacher, as a woman, I remember it was like, oh, so this is how it happens. I could feel the seduction, I could feel how easy it was to, if I didn't have boundaries, if I wasn't doing my own inner work, if I wasn't looking at this stuff all the time, your ego gets so filled with this projection and adoration. And I was like, I remember thinking, okay, so this is how it happens. So for myself as a teacher, even though I'm female, over the course of the years, I don't have the same experience of projection the way in which men do, um, but enough of it that I've had to really think about how do I show up in class? How do I present myself? I know that when I walk into a class, I have to be asexual and in my energy, in my tones, in my touch. I have to be utterly careful about how I, there's a difference when I put my palm on someone flat and when I use my fingers. There's a very different energy that gets transferred. And I have to be aware of this all the time. I don't walk into a yoga class wearing super body conscious clothing. You know, I wear all black. I, not that it's, you can't do that, of course you can. But I'm hypersensitive to make sure that my own sexuality remains neutral so that the environment in which I create and facilitate is safe, is appropriate. It doesn't mean there's not still projection, but it means though I've done my best to make sure that I'm not feeding into that sensuality, I'm not feeding into that seduction. And sadly, a lot of the teachers who are out there are not trauma informed, they don't understand the idea of projection and transference, that they are getting caught up in the ego and that, it, it, like if I don't feel good about myself, all I have to do is show up at a class and teach and I'm gonna have 10, 20, 100 people <laughs> telling me I'm fabulous and wonderful and beautiful and that I've changed their life. That is seductive, it's seductive. And it means then I don't have to work on myself. All I have to do is keep coming to class. But I know it's never enough. It's never, there's never enough validation that's gonna make me feel good about myself. So as a teacher, I have to make sure I'm in therapy, I'm working with my spiritual mentors. I acknowledge when that seduction comes up. I acknowledge when I'm attracted to a student. 
but I work on it and I make sure I'm not bringing that into the room because I'm in a position of authority and power and I have to know that. So what I'm seeing in the community is that, that a lot of the men, um, whom, and many of the men who have been doing this, I know them and I've had relations, not, not, not uh, sexual relationships, but professional relationships with them over the years. And, um, and I recognize that they're not dealing with their own unhealed trauma, that their ego is what's motivating their choices, that they are being seduced in that environment and being as a result, the seductors and exploiting the vulnerability that is prevalent in those rooms as it should be because people come there to heal. So it's very complex. Um, it's very discouraging. Um, and my hope is that with what's happening now, that the teachers in the yoga community that have been using their positionality in this way, that they wake up, that they let this mirror get flipped back on them, that they use this opportunity to really take ownership for their own um, ego and their own, uh, uh, ex their own exploitation, what they've been doing, and choose to heal it. And never use this position, never use this environment to speak to, to touch, to uh, encourage a student in a way that is not boundary. So I've always been very passionate about this subject only because I've been on both sides. Uh, as a student, I've been exploited. As a teacher, I've never exploited a student, but I've witnessed how easy it would be. How easy, how often, all I have to do is touch a student in a certain way or compliment them in a certain way. That student's going to come back tomorrow and then the next day and the next day after that. And suddenly I have a following of all of these students who are there for, um, uh, I become their mother. I become, I become something else other than what I am, but it's not from a healthy and integrated place. And again, it's not for them to know that at this point because they're the ones in the process of healing. What they're experiencing is natural. But the, just like with a therapist, my job is to create that boundary. Let them have their experience. Try to create languaging in the room that allows them to come to terms with that knowledge. But never, never exploit their vulnerability for my own benefit. Mm. Oh, Sean, that's, that's so great. And I know that for me, um, having Hala Corey, obviously, as one of my teachers, really sort of uh, setting the tone and, and, and ingraining in my, in my brain at, at a young age when I did the training, how important it is to have those boundaries and, and having, you know, knowing that there's this transference that happens and knowing how to utilize that, 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 uh, that stage or, or utilizing the pulpit in a way that's going to be uh, beneficial and not uh, egocentric, right? And, and knowing where the boundaries are with, uh, you know, your students and, and the people around you and, and understanding uh, how to use that in, in a way that's not at your, in a way that you're not going to take advantage of other people or other people take advantage of you. So I, I love that you, you all, all of the, the, the teachers that I look up to, um, really have a uh, solid ground in that. So, so I, I thank you for, for setting that tone and for being uh, aware of that and for, for teaching us that, because I think it's important. I don't think that there's 
enough yoga teachers out there that are actually doing it or that actually even understand it or, or know that it's a problem when you cross those boundaries with your students, you know? Precisely. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I'm hoping that there's going to be more change that happens. You know, there's a, there's a couple things. I mean, now sometimes, you know, people fall in love in a yoga class, teacher and a student, you know, there's students come in who aren't healing, you know, who are mature enough and there's consensual relationships that get developed. Um, it happens. And, uh, and in some cases, you know, you know, I often, I have a partner I've had for a thousand years that I did not meet in a yoga class, but I often think like, had I not, uh, been with him, I I'm nowhere else, but I'm either home or I'm in a yoga class. So where would I meet someone? You know, it's not like I'm going, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be out on Tinder or whatever those things are. So odds are that would have probably been my future. And so I really think about that too, like what is appropriate. And I think I can't speak for other teachers, but I would think for myself um, that if I was attracted to a student and that became clear and it was mutual, that I would, that that student was no longer, they wouldn't be able to take my class again. I would also suggest that there would be a period of time of no contact, maybe a month. I don't know what that would look like, six weeks, but like almost like a detox time where whatever intrigue has built up kind of has an opportunity to dissolve and then meet in an environment completely independent of yoga or meditation or anything that's of that, that, that community um, where you can meet on equal grounds. That would be maybe a way in which to do it responsibly and maturely. Um, that would be one thing I would suggest. Now, the other thing that is really important for a lot of these teachers, and this is how I, I feel about it, is when you become a yoga teacher, I really do believe, of course, you know, this is these are magical practices and they're transformative practices. And just because you're a yoga teacher doesn't mean you're exempt from getting the lessons that are necessary that are going to mature and evolve your soul because that's what you asked for. That was the intention. So when you become a yoga teacher, the path is almost accelerated because now you're in a position of authority and power. Therefore the shadow gets, when the light gets brighter, the shadow also gets deeper, richer, um, and more dense. And to me, it was almost obvious. It was like, Oh, I'm now put in this position. I've got to look, I've almost got to anticipate, the lessons that I'm going to be asked to learn in order to earn this seat and earn this responsibility. And that's how I wish more and more yoga teachers would look at it, especially the men who are you know, mostly statistically doing uh, a lot of this abuse, that they realize that this is that this is this seduction is the thing that's keeping them from their highest self. This ego is the thing that's keeping them. So it's, it's there. It's not just a lesson for the student. It's like, okay, spirit, there it is. You're giving me an opportunity right now to make a choice. And am I going to let my ego motivate this decision? Or am I going to see, I feel the seduction. I feel the need for validation and approval. I recognize that this is, it feels sexual. It feels sensual. It feels exciting. And that if I buy into it, the price I will have to pay is not necessarily worth it. The lessons I'm going to have to learn are going to be painful and intense. Therefore, instead of making this decision, 
Let me sit with the discomfort. Let me sit with the impulse rather than act out on it. That's the thing that I think a lot of yoga teachers are missing is that this is the yoga in those moments, these choices, that's the yoga. And that if they can either choose fear or choose love. And what we're seeing a lot of time, we're seeing a lot of teachers exploit their positionality and choose fear over love. And that these relationships do not work and that it will ultimately come back to bite the teacher on the ass. It, and it should. I want it coming out. I hope it comes out. It saddens and scares me because, like I said, I, I have professional relationships with a lot of men whom I know have been participating in this kind of harassment, exploitation, manipulation, um, and, and all have good reasons, you know, in their mind, why they've done what they've done. And like on a personal level, there are some people I, I really like and have enjoyed their, their company and who they are in the world, yet have bared witness to choices where I thought, like, why? Like, why would you put yourself, why would you put them in this position? And I'm sad because they'll lose their careers, perhaps. Some already have. Um, they'll lose all the things that they've, they've worked hard for. And they should. They should. That I would feel the same way about myself. I would feel the same way about any woman who exploited that, uh, their, that positionality. I, I can, and I feel like I can hold both. That I can feel badly for their soul and for the choices that they've made and for the little child in them that is broken and wounded um, and feel that, that they have to be accountable and that there's, a, there's consequences to these kinds of actions and to really look at what is consent. When someone is vulnerable and healing, then the, the consent, that, that the parameters within that need to be really looked at in a different way um, because what part of them is saying yes? Um, is it the broken, wounded, fractured part, or is it their whole integrated self? And unless it's their whole integrated self, stay away. You know, don't even don't don't observe it. Witness your own impulse. Breathe into it, and be there and be of support to their experience. That's what they came to class for. You know, not to get dry humped in Paschimottanasana. <laughs> <laughs> and I have learned so much from this conversation and I and I so appreciate your wisdom and your insight I think it's it's sparking a, a conversation that I think needs to be had and and continue to be had and um and I I just really appreciate that and and I thank you for that um I want to just uh uh ask you a couple more questions and then we'll we'll be done um so they'll be quick um just to kind of shift gears here, um, this is just sort of like in regard to this podcast and what I was trying to create. So uh, radically loved is this idea that we are completely loved and supported by uh, God, source, goddess, energy, whatever it is, whatever higher power of your understanding, you are completely loved and supported. Uh, it doesn't matter what your background is, doesn't matter where you came from, you are radically loved. And so in saying that, we're providing a space for people to feel completely supported by by us and, and the information that we are putting out into the world. So my question to you is, how do you feel that radical love in your life and what do you radically love? 
Um, well, I have a very strong relationship to spirit. And so that's something that I don't ever second guess, even in the moments of great pain and loss that I've experienced in my life, um, like losing my father, for example, uh, I've never not felt that I, that my essence is completely valued, adored, treasured as it is, as a soul that walks this planet amongst billions of other souls. Um, I'm loved and valued equally in the way in which I express myself in human form. And so that's something I never second guess. I'm, I live my life with a lot of love. Um, and it's probably why I have so much confidence and I have a lot of confidence and it's because of my mother and my partner. Um, my, my mother has, and to this day still, I, I walk this world knowing that I am fully adored by this person, body, mind, and spirit. This person has my back. There's nothing I could do or say or create that she wouldn't be absolutely proud of. At the same time, has no problem calling me um, out and up uh, when I need you know, good talking to. Um, the love is absolutely unconditional. And I'm used to that. You know, I was raised with that. Um, it wouldn't have mattered to me that I was a successful yoga teacher or if I was working. Um, it, it wouldn't matter to my mother what I would do. Her love for me would not change based on my success or the way I look or anything like that. Uh, so that's something that I've just grown accustomed to. And I've been really fortunate that I've chosen partners that I didn't want anything less than that. And meaning that anything less than that would be like, well, why? If I, if I get that kind of love from my parents, why would I ex expect anything less from my partner? And why would I give anything less to my partner? So I'm very much radically loved in my relationship. Um, there's a, you know, I'm a big personality and um, I'm a lot to hold and there's nothing that my partner would want to change about me. He's come. He's definitely the man behind the woman. All of my success, everything that I have done, I know that I wouldn't have been able to do it as sustainably had I not had his his quiet support and his radical love behind me along the way. And um, it it gives me joy to be able to acknowledge him in that way because he expects nothing from me except for me to be fully happy and to be fully myself. And he also accepts that my commitment into the world is to create change everywhere I go. And that includes in him. And so I'm always up his ass to change his diet, to change whatever it is. Every day, it's a different litany of things that he needs to change. But he has so much self-confidence within himself that he never has to diminish me in order to feel good about himself. And he doesn't, he just laughs at me. He just knows that that's just who I am. And why would he think that he would be exempt to that passion if like the world's not exempt? And so he just accepts me and, um, and I get to radically love him and the family in which he introduced to my life, his children. This is the, this is my core. You know, these are my people. This is my source of strength and, uh, and, and joy. And so 
that's that that's how I'm radically loved and that's how I get to radically love. It shows up in my family. I think it shows up uh, certainly with animals and I hope it shows up in the work that I do. That my love, it's the amount of love that's poured into me, it's, it's energy and energy has to be shared. Otherwise you stop the flow. So the more love that I give out, the more love I'm available to. And so I hope that people in the world feel my love for them and how radically committed I am to sharing my love through yoga. But it's because of the love that gets fed in me. It's not coming from an insecure or codependent place. It's coming from a place of, of real true confidence. And when I say self-confidence, it's not an ego thing. It's with a capital S. It's God. And that's because of the love that I'm infused with. Oh. Oh, that is just that is well just said. Well Thank said. you so Thank much, you so for, much. Saying for saying that, that. and for uh, just obviously being being who you are in the world and for creating everything that you have and for lighting the path for people like me that were inspired by teachers like you in the world. And uh, I, I'm just beyond grateful for you and for that. So thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the conversation and and talking to you at this level. And I hope that everyone who's listening really can take in that message and look to see where they're at in their life or around the conversation that we've been having and and go a little bit deeper within themselves about what they do, to, what they want to do in order to create so, social change and what that means for them. Uh, it's an important conversation, but it's a conversation that's it has to be about, about the collective right now. It requires all voices at this time to come up and out. Yeah. So for people listening who want to just learn a little bit more uh, about this and about you, where can people go to connect with you? Sure. Either at SeanCorn.com or off the mat into the world.org. They're interested in learning more about the projects that we do related to yoga transformation, social justice, and action. Going to off the mat into the world.org is going to give them the most information about me and also about our community. We have incredible faculty doing really extraordinary work, um, both within the mainstream yoga community as well as the other communities of yoga that are more in the margins and that there's all different kinds of online trainings, in-person trainings and actions that we do um, globally that people can find different ways to plug in or get educated about at this time. Oh, thank you so much. Do you, are you on social media at all? Is there, sure. yeah, if they want to see a lot of pictures of my cat, they can go <laughs> <on> Instagram <laughs> for sure. And uh, yeah, I'm on Instagram, Facebook and social media and um, Twitter. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a mixture of information about my cat the work that I'm doing and just other things that are happening in the world and throwback pictures of me in the eighties. Oh, I love, which I love, by the way, I know that you posted a couple and I was like, just, I thought they were great. Um, well, thank you so much for everyone listening. All of those links will also be uh, on the show notes. So if you click on the show notes, um, I'll add the links to Emily's list as well as a couple of the things that we talked about on this podcast. So everyone can just go directly to the show notes and click the links and everything's there. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I am so excited to continue to do this. Please share this with your friends. Email us, message us on Instagram at Rosie Acosta or on Twitter at Rosie Acosta. Subscribe on iTunes, write a review. We love doing this, so please help us continue to keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening.